0: My name is Chuck Freilich, I'm a senior fellow at the Kennedy School, a former defense official in Israel. I was the deputy national security advisor in my last position and I am here today as a fill-in for someone who cannot be replaced, Charles Small, the director of ISGAP. But uh, Charles is at an event in Toronto tonight and has asked me to introduce our speaker and I will apologize in advance, I am leaving in two minutes to go and teach a class. So my presence will be brief. Uh, ISGAP, the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism, has as its mission conducting academic research, high-level academic research, on the phenomenon of anti-Semitism to try and prevent it and try and prevent other forms of hatred around the world. And it does this, among other things, through a variety of conferences and seminars that it holds in leading academic institutions around the world, not just here, but Columbia, Stanford, um, Oxford, and various other places. I'll uh, just give you an, a, examples of a couple of the conferences from recent years. The names pretty much say it all. Global anti-Semitism, a crisis of modernity. Radical Islam and the nuclear bomb. Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah, anti-Semitism, and the Holocaust, denial. And there's a long list, and there's an ISGAP uh, conference meeting happening almost every day. I suggest that you look at the website. We're meeting at a poignant time of the year. Today is Memorial Day in Israel, Yom HaZikaron, the uh, the equivalent of Memorial Day in the United States, uh, when we remember the soldiers who have given their lives in Israel's defense. It's exactly one week after Yom HaShoah, Holocaust Day, and tomorrow is Independence Day. So, what a week. We go from the total, total, total depths of uh, utter destruction. Today, we commemorate the losses of Israel soldiers, but tomorrow, we celebrate. In Israel, it's a little bit of a, uh, how to call it, almost a uh, schizophrenic experience because there's Memorial Day, and for those of you who have experienced it, the sirens go off twice, I mean, the state of Israel comes to a halt. And if you're driving down the highway at 70 miles an hour, you slam on your brakes and everybody comes to a halt and stands at attention for a minute. And there are ceremonies uh, throughout the country, of course. And as the day ends, the atmosphere starts lightening. If you listen to the radio, the music changes from deep, sad memorial music starts getting a little, little, little happier. And then by evening, it's the latest Israeli rock and we're celebrating independence. And tomorrow is a celebration of Independence Day. And uh, this gentleman heard me say this last week, but I, half the uh, offices in, in the defense establishment in Israel have a picture on the wall, which to me is the most most poignant, most emotional picture I've ever seen. And it's a picture of two Israeli F-15s flying over Auschwitz. Uh, Talk about national rebirth. So, a very special week. Professor Arnold Dashefsky, University of Connecticut. I will not give you the entire list of publications because it is far too long. Let me just mention a couple of Arnie's books. One is under is being write, written at the moment: "Jewish Options," "Charitable Choices," "Philanthropic Decisions of Donors in the American Jewish Community," "Jewish Choices," "American Jewish Denomination, Denominationalism." We have to practice saying that one. Americans Abroad, a comparative study of emigrants from the U.S., which I just learned is a comparison of uh, emigrants from the U.S. to Israel and Australia. I never would have thought that somebody would have compared those two. Fascinating study, it sounds like. And ethnic identification among American Jews. And Professor Dershevsky is the past president of the Association for the Social Scientific Study of Jewry. He's a board member of various other associations dealing with Jewish studies. And it sounds like... Unfortunately, I have to say, you are in for a treat tonight. I wish I could stay also. Please.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm I'm delighted to be here uh, as the final presenter in this uh, wonderful series of lectures that Dr. Charles Small has uh, assembled. I think we all owe a debt uh, to uh, Charles for his... Uh, effective efforts and a prophetic voice in elevating the discussion of anti-Semitism to an advanced academic level. Um, My topic tonight is American anti-Semitism grounds for optimism or pessimism. Uh, Before I begin, let me just share a story with you to sort of uh, set the scene about optimism versus pessimism uh, in the American context of anti-Semitism. It's a story about the uh, Broadway producer, George M. Cohan, and uh, he was interested in going to a rather expensive hotel and wrote to the hotel to get a reservation, but he got back uh, uh, an answer that he, I don't think he was expecting. And the hotel wrote back and they said, um, we, only ca- we, have, we cater to a restricted clientele. So it's obvious they had mistaken George M. Cohan for George M. Cohen." Uh, and uh, they were turning him away because they thought he was Jewish. So um, George M. Cohen wired back the following. Apparently there's been a mistake on both sides. You thought I was Jewish and um, I thought you were a gentleman. So think about that uh, in terms of uh, what uh, we'll come back to at the end, the, the issue of optimism and pessimism. Now all of us are keenly aware of the perpetration of anti-Semitic atrocities recently committed abroad and we wonder, I suppose, whether these tragedies will be repeated in the U.S. So in order to examine this issue, we'll address both historical and contemporary expressions of anti-Semitism with a special focus on American society. Now to to answer that general theme, I've come up with five Questions that I'd like to uh, run through with you tonight and try to address. In some respects, it's pretty fitting uh, because it's a nice summary uh, for all of the topics that you've explored uh, during the past uh, several months. So, first, we're going to look at how does anti Semitism fit into the historical evolution of Jewish civilization? <clears throat> and second, how has anti Semitism evolved within the context of the Jewish experience in American society? And third, what's the contemporary survey evidence of anti-Semitism in the U.S. with global comparisons if you have uh, the time and the patience? Fourth, what are the correlates and consequences of American anti-Semitism? And finally, are these findings grounds for pessimism or optimism? So let's take a look uh, at this first question. How does anti-Semitism fit into the historical evolution of Jewish civilization? Now, I've done a rather brash thing. Um, I've taken the four millennia of Jewish history and reduced it to one table. It's got two sides to it, the table. And I divided uh, Jewish civilization into five periods that I think most Judaic studies scholars would agree to. The biblical, uh, the second temple, the medieval, the modern, and the contemporary. We want to see where anti-Semitism fits into this. But before I do that, just to explain the table, there are a total of nine columns. The first column is the period, the five I just identified. The second has uh, the various dates uh, of historical events and experiences described in the third column. The dates here the biblical are pretty approximate, because we don't necessarily have hard data on all of that. But the, the key from a sociological point of view are the next six columns. So as a sociologist, in trying to understand the evolution of Jewish civilization, I have to ask myself, well, what was the economic and political factors that were shaping Jewish life in the biblical period? So I'm not going to go through this whole table, because that's a whole evening unto itself. But if you're interested, I have copies of all this. You can take it home with you. But just ask yourselves, in the biblical stories, how did Jews, ancient Israelites, make a living? What did they do? What did Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebecca? how did they make a living? What did the stories tell us? They were what? Shepherds first, shepherds, right? And so they wandered about. So what, what kind of political organization could shepherds have? They don't really have a state that's fixed. So we see in the biblical stories, the movement from a nomadic pastoral life to a more sedentary agricultural life. So agriculture comes in later, but if you just look at the, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the five books of Moses, they're mostly wandering about. Uh, and then when they settle the land, they what do they do to organize themselves politically? They want to have a king, and they create a monarchy. Okay, So the economic and political situation drives the religious life. So when they're wandering around in the Torah, stories. Where, what's the central focus of their religion? They have the tent of Meeting where they carry around the Ark of the Covenant. You remember the Ark of the Covenant? what Indiana Jones was looking for in one of those movies. But then when they settle the land, you don't need a portable tent. So what do they do? They build a, a temple, right? So th- that's sort of, we go, I do that, go through all the different periods. Now where does anti-Semitism fit in? Anti-Semitism begins in this period, and most historians suggest that the first instance of anti-Semitism was really a kind of anti-Judaism perpetrated by the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire living in Syria in the second century. And during this time, the uh, Syrian Greeks tried to suppress the practice of Judaism. They went into the temple of Jerusalem and defiled it. And then what happened? about the 160s before the Common Era. The Maccabees rose up and drove the Syrian Greeks out and as a result the Jews celebrate the festival of Hanukkah, right? So that's kind of the first instance of anti-Semitism where it's really anti-Judaism. One more instance in this second temple period occurs in the beginnings with the first century of the Common Era, a very powerful century because many different transitions take place. One of the important developments in the first century of the common era is the development of Christianity. Now, Christianity begins to evolve, also just as Judaism evolved, and it evolves an ideology that it's here to replace Judaism. Uh, in fact, what, what's the what's the sacred book of Christianity? It's called the New New Testament. That's really not what it's called. I mean, we know we call it in English that it's really the New Covenant. And it's a mistranslation from the Greek to the Latin, Novum Testamentum, New Testament. But why is the New Covenant such an important idea? Because it's saying there was an Old Covenant. Who had the Old Covenant? The Jews. The, Jews. the, the stories, you know, that God makes a covenant with Abraham and says your, uh, your descendants will be as plentiful as a multitude like the stars and the sand on the shore. So Christianity... Um, ultimately moves towards supplanting Judaism and uh, creating an ideology that it's going to supersede Judaism. And that supersessionist ideology uh, takes on a real political reality when the Romans adopt Christianity as the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 3rd century. Um, So the Second Temple period covers a period from the beginnings of the uh, Greek rule over ancient Israel under Alexander in the fourth century before the Common Era and goes until about the year 500 of the Common Era when the Babylonian uh, Talmud uh, is completed. Now, the next period of Jewish civilization initially corresponds to our general view of European civilization, the medieval period. Now, when we talk about medieval times, what, what, what are the years that we're usually talking about for medieval times? From about 500, the fall of Rome, 476, until the beginning of the Renaissance, which is, let's say, the end of the 1400s, the, the invention of the printing press, the proliferation of the, all the art, wonderful art that was created in European uh, countries. But in Judaism, the medieval period doesn't end with the Renaissance <clears throat> because Jews continue to be suppressed uh, in the medieval period and uh, are restricted. Jews, have to, Jews don't have individual rights in the communities that they're living in during this medieval period. Uh, they, um, they only have, they're tolerated by the ruler if they pay a tax as a community, not as individual citizens. So generally, historians talk about the medieval period and say the Jews live as a state within a state. Now, uh, what goes on is this, this idea of Christianity being a, a supersessionist, having a supersessionist uh, ideology uh, to put Judaism to the back burner uh, also leads to a demonization of the Jews, a denigration of the Jews, uh, and... Um, A denial of the Jews as being uh, equal to Christians. Um, I saw this very graphically. A number of years ago, I was in Uppsala at the university there in Sweden, and a colleague of mine, a sociologist, gave me a tour of the main church in Uppsala. And he pointed out that in the church, there is a picture of a a depiction of a Jew who is uh, wearing a dunce cap. And Suckling at the teat of a sow—it's sort of so denigrating to it, to uh, the depiction of the Jews. Um, well, this denigration and uh, delegitimation uh, of the Jews led to their expulsion from many countries during this medieval period. From uh, England in twelve ninety, from France in thirteen o six, and the What's the most famous medieval expulsion? Are you familiar with that? Spain in 1492, followed by Portugal in 1497. Uh, So the uh, expulsion of the Jews from Spain is corresponding to the beginnings of the Renaissance uh, in Europe, but in that period of time, the Jews are still not emancipated. In fact, the ghetto in Venice is created in the 1500s. So Jews continue to be treated as a group that has to be locked up at night uh, in an area and then allowed to get out in the morning to do their work to aid the community and provide services and then come back again at night in order to uh, be secured by the rulers. So what, is, what ends the medieval period in Jewish history? When, when did, how did Jews get emancipated? How did they get to get out of the ghetto? France? In France, right. After the French Revolution and uh, subsequently also with Napoleon, the Jews are allowed to be citizens of French society. Uh, as the Count de Clermont said, um, "To everything to the individual Jew, nothing to the organized Jewish community. That's a paraphrase. So now Jews can participate in the larger society. And they can interact more regularly with the rest of society. So you think, well, anti-Semitism is, de- is going to decline because now there seems to be the support of the state for their having rights. But as they interact more and more with the society, the old ideas still uh, permeate the society. And so France, which is the great country of the emancipation, of, of the initial place where Jews are emancipated at the uh, end of the 18th, the beginning of the 19th century, by the end of the 19th century, what great anti-Semitic tragedy occurs in the 1890s in France. The Dreyfus Affair, right, which is sort of represents the lingering anti-Semitism of that society. Now what happens in the latter part of the 19th century is this anti-Judaism that's been around for two millennia now takes on an anti-Semitic quality. That is, it's against the people, not against the religion alone. And the anti-Semitism is a term that's coined by Wilhelm Marr a German, in 1879. And building on that anti-Jewish sentiment, that is the people are to be opposed, not just the religion. And furthermore, there's a kind of racialization of the Jews and an attempt to make scientific the idea that the Jews are genetically inferior. So what, what does that lead to ultimately in the 20th century? That the Jews are... A people that are inferior, their genes are inferior, so if you want to save humanity, what do you have to do? Wipe them out. Wipe them out. That's why the Holocaust uh, emerges as a logical end from the German Nazi races. So we've seen Judaism evo- uh, or anti-Semitism evolve from anti-Judaism to anti-Jewish sentiment, to anti-Semitic sentiment. Uh, and, and, And that's taking place here in what I would describe as the modern period beginning with 1789, the French Revolution, and going to 1948. I trace what I call the contemporary period to the emergence of the State of Israel as some historians have suggested, the third commonwealth. The first commonwealth was the first temple. The second commonwealth was the second temple that was destroyed in the year 70. And then the third commonwealth represents the emergence of an independent state of Israel. But here again, just as Judaism and Jewish civilization have evolved through these four millennia, anti-Semitism has evolved. As we said, first from anti-Judaism, then to anti-Semitism and opposition to the Jews, and then in this contemporary period, um, anti-Semitism is taking on is taking off of a kind of anti-Zionism, and that uh, anybody associated with Zionism and the anti-Semites see all Jews as associated with Zionism as uh, worthy of vilification, worthy of uh, 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 oppression. So. Uh, what we've traced here is kind of an evolutionary trends in the in Jewish civilization and the parallel changes uh, in, that have taken place uh, in regard to anti-Semitism. Uh, let me stop here. I, I just gave you like in ten minutes all of Jewish history, so you might have a if you have a question. I'm happy to to answer it. L- let me yes. Uh, you mentioned
2: the, uh...
1: Supercessionism, right? So the the evangelicals
2: reject that pretty much. Isn't it? Did you say that's
1: correct? Um, I'm not I'm not sure I think some do. I'm not sure all of them do. I'm not sure, you know, which, which groups we're going to include in the evangelicals. I would mean, still get people coming to my door telling me about salvation. Just around right. Pesach so, they came. So
2: maybe I should modify that. They seem to reject replacement
1: of the Jews in terms of their rights to Israel. Is that
2: correct? Would you say that's true? They seem to upset. say? Reject that the Jews don't have a right to, to the
1: land. Of yeah, yes, I think evangelicals <laughs> have taken on, many of them, a very pro-Zionist uh, <coughs> perspective. I, I've met Zion, Christians who live in Israel, in Jerusalem is where I met them, who are in a way Zionist. They, they want to live in Israel, they want to get closer to Jesus's homeland and they have a great respect for Jews and support the Jews. So th- there's a kind of philo-semitism that's also countervailing some of the anti-semitism that we see. I, let me share with you one little, um, cute little story. I, I, I found this pretty funny so I hope you do too. One of the th- one of the aspects to the medieval period, I talked about the denigration of the Jews, the demonization of the Jews, um, but there were also disputations with the Jews that Christians organized in order to show that Christianity was superior to Judaism, uh, and they would have debates. So here's a kind of cute take on this debate. So you might find this interesting. Uh, several centuries ago, the Pope decided uh, that the Jews had to. S- had to leave the Vatican. So there was naturally a big uproar in the Jewish community. And the Pope um, offered a deal. He would have a religious debate with a member of the Jewish community. If the Jew won, the Jews could stay. If the Pope won, the Jews would have to leave. So the Jews realized that they had no choice. So they picked an elderly man by the name of Moshe and they said that you were going to debate uh, the Pope. Uh, and the Pope, uh, but since Moshe's Latin wasn't very good, they agreed to have a silent debate. Um, and that seemed e- an easy solution for the Pope. Um, so the day of the debate came and Moshe and the Pope sat opposite each other for a full minute before the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. Moshe looked back at him and he raised one finger. The Pope waved his finger. Uh, fingers in a circle around his head and Moshe pointed to the ground where he sat. The Pope then pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine and Moshe pulled out an apple. The Pope stood up and said, I give up. This man is too good. The Jews can stay. So what's, what's the interpretation? So after this debate the cardinals all crowded around the Pope asking him what happened. The Pope said, first I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me that there was still one God common to both our religions. Then I waved my finger around me to show him that God was all around us. He responded to pointing to the ground and showing that God was also right here with us. So then I pulled out the wine and the wafer to show that God absolves us from our sins, and he pulled out an apple to remind me of the original sin. He had an answer for everything. So what could I do? I had to let the Jews stay. So then afterwards, the Jews crowd around Moshe. Well, what was your take on what happened? Uh, So, well, says Moshe, first he said to me that the Jews had three days to get out of here. I told him that not one of us was leaving. (laughs) Then he told me that the whole city would be cleared of Jews. I let him know that we were staying right here. And then asked a woman, I don't know, said Moshe. He took out his lunch, so I took out mine. I think that's a really cute story. I learned it from my brother-in-law, an economist, actually. All right, so now I've situated these five epics of Jewish civilization. Um, But now we want to look at how anti-Semitism has evolved within the context of the Jewish experience in American society. So the previous, I took, it took two, two screens to show you the five epochs of Jewish civilization. There's only one screen to show you American Jewish history um, because that's only four centuries that Jews have been here. So you know when Jews first came to the, to North America? 1654, right, 1654. Right, We're, we're going to come to that in a minute. Um, where, by the way, where did they come from? Uh,
2: from South, from
1: Recife, Brazil. Recife, Brazil. Now, why do they leave this place called Brazil to come to this little nothing called New Amsterdam. Right, because uh, Brazil was first a Dutch possession. And these Jews were emigres from the Sephardic exiles of the Iberian Peninsula. Remember 1492 Spain, 1497 Portugal. They went to Holland, the Netherlands, which was more accepting of them. And some of them ended up in the New World in a Dutch possession, namely Brazil. But now the Dutch were ceding Brazil to the Portuguese and the Jews didn't want to have to endure the Inquisition, possibly having to convert because they weren't tolerated to live there. So they went to uh, a Dutch possession in the New World. They ended up in New Amsterdam and I think it was September of 1654. The governor, Peter uh, Stuyvesant, wasn't too happy that these people showed up. And he wrote back into the... Dutch East India Company in, in, uh, in the Netherlands and said, do I have to keep these Jews? You know, if I keep these Jews here, I'm going to have to let the Papists in. Who did he mean, who were the Papists? The Catholics, more of an enemy to these Protestant, Dutch uh, Reformed uh, Christians than the Jews were. Well, the people from the Dutch East India Company said, "No, let the Jews stay, they could be productive citizens. But in what period from the previous ones that we were talking about? Sorry. In what period do does 1654 fall? Is that the medieval or the modern period? Medieval. Medieval. So in the medieval period, do Jews have individual rights? Not really. They're there, they're tolerated by the ruler. In this case, the governor is tolerating them. So they couldn't fully participate in the society. For example, they weren't allowed to join the night watch and carry a weapon to protect the community. They didn't have the full rights. Uh, and this varied from colony to colony, where the, where the rights were secured as individuals and where they were. Can you, can you identify which colonies were more hospitable to the Jews? might be where the first synagogues were, Rhode Island, that's 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 not the first synagogue, it's the oldest synagogue building still in existence, worth a trip down to Newport to see it. I took my students in the sociology of anti-Semitism to see it this last fall, but the oldest synagogue is in New York in 1712, She'ereth Israel, She'er Yisrael, and Mikveh Israel, the hope of Israel, in 1740 in Philadelphia. So New York and Philadelphia, Rhode Island were more tolerant. What states, by the way, were not very tolerant? Connecticut. Connecticut and Massachusetts. In fact, I made a calculation. How many years have Jews lived in North America? 361. 1654 to 2015. In more years in Connecticut and Massachusetts, um, 187 years, Jews weren't really tolerated in a public way. They couldn't organize a synagogue. What's the oldest synagogue in Massachusetts? Now, you folks are here, so I'll give me a little Massachusetts history. Oabay oh, Shalom, 1843. The oldest synagogue in Connecticut, Beth Israel, and there's one in New Haven, Beth Israel in Hartford, 1843. What happened was... That the legislature in Connecticut, I guess probably similar in Massachusetts, although I don't know that as well, said that the Jews could publicly organize themselves and form a synagogue. They didn't want to do that because of the lingering domination of the Puritan ethic that founded Massachusetts and Connecticut. Uh, And there was a kind of theocratic tendency in Connecticut and Massachusetts that the only authentic version of religion was the Puritan version of religion. And that changed by an act of the legislature uh, in Connecticut in 1843. So um, let's just take a quick look at uh, how I set this up. So really half of the Jewish experience uh, is where Jews come from these originally Sephardic settlement areas, Spanish Portuguese Jews, a remnant, uh, very small. Uh, by the time of the of 1776, the year of American uh, independence, uh, or rather the Declaration of Independence, um, there are only a few thousand Jews living in the United States, and even into the 1820s, only a small number, a few thousand Jews. The population begins to take off in the 1820s and 30s and through the 19th century, as many German Jews begin to migrate to North America as a result of economic and political dislocations in Germany. Now, uh, the way the ta- this table is set up is we look again at the economic adjustment, the political adjustment and the level of anti-Semitism, uh, the, um, the degree of assimilation and the religious adaptations that uh, individuals make. And We see that as Jews are relatively small uh, in the 1600s, 1700s, and into the first part of the 1800s, the level of hostility to Jews is not very great. In fact, in the 19th century, which religious group is bearing the brunt of hostility? Catholics, right? They're coming in large numbers, from, from first from Ireland in the middle of the century, and later on from Eastern Europe. When uh, anti-Semitism begins to develop, it's after the migrations. Um, beginning in 1880 after the uh, Pale of Settlement in, in Russia and other dislocations that take place, many Jews begin to migrate and now instead of just having about a quarter of a million Jews uh, in uh, after the Civil War in the United States, by the middle of the 20th century, there were over three million Jews and then uh, by the 1930s, even more. In fact. By the 1930s, Jews represent 3.7% of the American population. What do they represent today? Well, no, a little more, 2%. So why have the Jews' proportion shrunk between the 1930s and the present? Because the fertility, the number of children born in Jewish families is much smaller on average than the rest of the population. Uh, Plus, there's been substantial migration from other countries to the United States. There have been some migrations, even after uh, World War II, um, some remnants of the Holocaust, the Israelis, Russian Jews, uh, little growth now in the last uh, decade or two in, of Latin American Jews in Miami and the South Florida area. Um, so the parallels of, uh, in the United States to the anti-Semitism that's spreading in Europe continues. In other words, what I I say, the the Dreyfus affair, 1890. Anti-Semitism emerges as a term in 1879. Uh, Mark Twain goes to the Austrian Parliament in 1898 and he says, he he writes back about the virulent anti-Semitism that's expressed in the Austrian Parliament. Then the Nazis come to power. They emerge in the 1920s in Germany, come to power in the 1930s, um, execute the Holocaust in the 1940s, all of these bring a high level of anti-Semitism into play in Europe. What's going on in the United States? Anti-Semitism is also growing, right? If, if you live through the 1930s, you may remember Father Kovlin and radio shows, and Henry Ford, people leveling diatribes against the Jews. Now what, what ends up sort of attenuating this anti-Semitism? When does, that, when does that peak of anti-Semitism in Europe, which is in the 1940s with the Holocaust, and also the United States in the 1930s and 40s, what what sort of brings that sort of to begin to slow down? And the, Second World War. the Second World War, right. So there's a parallel. Racism peaks during World War II. What's one of the first acts of the federal government to weaken racism, to integrate the military, to integrate the federal government? In order to fight a more efficient war, uh, the government decided to do that. So that's in the 40s and then just follow this decline of racism, not the elimination of racism, but the the diminution of it. What happens in the 1950s? Brown versus Board of Education in 1954, 1964, the Civil Rights Act, 1965, the Voting Rights Act, Uh, 1970, early 70s uh, under Richard Dixon, affirmative action. So we have all of these uh, uh, um, actions that are designed to reduce racism, with the World War II marking the peak of all of the, these actions. The parallel is anti-Semitism begins to decline. In the 1950s, my mother-in-law told me that uh, she remembers going to Bethlehem, New Hampshire, and in the White Mountains, and seeing signs, no, no Jews or dogs allowed. Restrictive country clubs, restrictions and occupations, no Jews. Uh, Welcome in business and insurance. I had a, uh, my students interviewed a lawyer in the 1960s who graduated, I think it was NYU Law School, was invited up for a job here in Boston, uh, and then was told, don't come. There's one Irish member, Irish Catholic in the firm, and uh, we're certainly not going to hire any Jews. So that was in the 1960s. So you see the gradual decline, and I would say the uh, a climax to that in terms of the greater acceptance of Jews in the United States is the year 2000. Now why did I pick the year 2000? Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman was elected, was voted the majority of the votes for him and for uh, for Senator uh, for Vice President Al Gore uh, in the year 2000. We know why they didn't become president and vice president, but popular will accepted a relatively pious, traditional-minded Jew to become the Vice President of the United States. I think that sort of shows the trajectory of decline of hostility to the Jews. In fact, most recently, the Pew Survey Research Center in Washington, D.C., published a study asking, what's the most favored religious group in the United States? And it turned out to be the Jews. Throughout much of the 20th century, when social scientists gave uh, asked people to rank all different religious and ethnic groups, Jews ended up being sort of in the middle of about 30 groups. Not at the the bottom, uh, and not certainly near the top. But here you have by the 21st century Jews being regarded as the most uh, favorable religious group. And if you take out the Jews from voting for themselves, and the Catholics voting for themselves and the Protestants voting for themselves, the gap between the Jews and the others it grows even more because the Jews are relatively small, 6.7 million, less about 2% of the population. Catholics are about 25% of the population. In a way, Catholics are the m- m- most numerous cohesive group, although altogether, if you summed all the Protestants, there are more Protestants in the United States. Um, oh. Uh, one thing I, I could uh, like to give you before you leave is this little um, little pocket demographics we call it. You can um, keep it in your pocket or your pocketbook and it has all the statistics uh, on American Jews And one of the things that's interesting in there well if you open it up, uh, you've got all the state populations. If you open it up further you have the 50 leading Jewish communities in the United States. And the reason I wanted to show this to you, at the bottom, you have a graphic illustration of the growth of the Jewish population from 23 and 1654 to the most recent estimates of about 6.7 million, so be sure to pick one up. You can take a couple, I've brought a lot with me, if you want to bring them for your friends or your family. Um, when I pass them out at professional meetings, they gobble them up mm-hmm. and I was surprised my niece and nephew were as interested as my colleagues were, my kids were, my, gr- my, no, my grandkids weren't that into it yet, they're a little too young. All right, so I'm trying to give you now an overview of the evolution of Jewish civilization, how anti-Semitism fits into that model, how American Jews fit into the story of world Jewry, um, and how anti-Semitism has progressed uh, increased through the end of the 19th and into the middle of the 20th century and began to decline. But before I go on, so i got th- three more questions. Did you want to ask me any questions? Is, it, is that reasonably clear? I, I, I realize I came here with a lot of information to give you but I felt obligated for you to leave with some understanding of anti-Semitism and Jewish civilization and how anti-Semitism fits into it since you, many of you spent several sessions here. Any, any questions? And you can take the table home with you and study them, you know, but I won't quiz you on it. don't worry. Um, okay, so now maybe you're particularly interested in what's the current situation of anti-Semitism, uh, what survey evidence do we have? So let me share a little bit of that with you. Now the Anti-Defamation League has been conducting surveys periodically uh, of anti-Semitism using a more or less similar set of questions for 50 years. So, if you look at this graphic here, in what year do we find the greatest level of anti-Semitism? 1964, where about nearly a third of Americans were judged to be anti-Semitic. Now, how much has that dropped in the most recent time period, 2013? to 12 percent, right? Don't, you can shout out the answers where Right, just a handful of people. Now, how do they measure anti-Semitism? They have used uh, a series of 11 index statements uh, over the years. They've changed them a little bit, but they try to stick with the, the basic questions. And they say that respondents who agree with no more than one of these index statements are considered to be essentially free of uh Hostile attitudes toward the Jews. Respondents who answer in the uh, affirmative or in the anti Semitic direction to six or more of these index statements are considered the most anti Semitic group. Uh, and they, they try to look at those people that scored high on six of these items and compare them to the rest of the population. So, let, uh, what are some of the examples? Uh, of these statements, Jews stick together more than any more than other Americans. So people are asked, do you agree? Do you agree, disagree with these? Jews have too much control and influence on Wall Street. Uh, Jews don't care what happens to anyone but their own kind. Jews are not just as honest as other business people. There are, there are several other items, but that gives you a flavor of them. People are asked to agree or to disagree. Um, <clears throat> so here you see. Uh, 2013, 12% are kind of free of any anti-Semitic hostility. I'm sorry, 12% uh, are in a, agreeing to six of these items and are judged to be anti-Semitic. Uh, the rest are either virtually free, 52%, or kind of in the middle and not judged to be anti-Semitic. So some people do ha- harbor with them some statements that we might judge that to be not sympathetic to the Jews or to be somewhat biased against the Jews. We'll look at a few examples uh, in a minute. Uh, for Well, here's a good example. Since 1964, 30 percent of Americans have consistently believed that Jews are more loyal to Israel than to America, despite the changing makeup of the U.S. population. So this there could be individuals that subscribe to this, but they're not. if they don't subscribe to a whole bunch of other items, they're not judged to be anti-Semitic. But it's still a pretty interesting finding about the kind of views that the larger American population has about Jews that think that a third of Americans tend to think the Jews are more loyal to Israel than to the United States. Um, I'm going to save time and skip over that one. However, this is kind of an interesting finding. Jews are held in high regard on many core beliefs of the American people. So uh, even the people judged to be anti-Semitic, 70% of them think Jews view them favorably as having a strong faith. Um, 74% of them view Jews as thinking that they're or acting as if their family is very important to them. A um, the little more dramatic difference between the general population in blue and the six plus indexers, the ones judged to be anti-Semitic, uh, 40, even though 45 percent of them think Jews make cultural contributions. So you don't, you could have hostility toward a group, but you could say some positive things about them. It's It's a kind of a curious mix, but it's been found in a lot of studies of prejudice. Another interesting finding, a fourth of Americans believe that Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus, Uh, that would include the people that are judged to be anti-Semitic, that's a much higher proportion, more than half of them generally in all the years. Uh, But even in the general population, about a quarter to almost a third judge Jews to believe that Jews were responsible for the death of Jesus. I guess a lot of them watched Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion. But The Passion is somewhat based on interpretations of the New Testament. Um, Another interesting uh, finding, a quarter of Americans continue to believe that Jews still talk too much about what happened to them in the Holocaust. This bothers um, a lot of America, a lot of Americans, and you see, even in 2013, where we say that 12 percent of the general population uh, is uh, anti-Semitic, um, 68 was that 68 percent, 66 percent say Jews talk too much about what happened to them in the Holocaust, and even 24 percent of the general population. Uh, say that Jews talk too much about the Holocaust. So there are some themes that um, kind of indicate a certain uh, uneasiness that the American population has uh, with uh, the Jewish population. Another interesting finding, these are all taken from the Anti-Defamation League, most recent survey of American Jews in the year 2013. There's a high correlation between anti-Semitic beliefs and broader intolerance. Uh, So people who are anti-Semitic tend to be more likely to be racist, more likely to be hostile to uh, other uh, other religious and ethnic groups. Um, Another interesting finding, in the past two years anti-Semitic views among the African-American population have declined but they still remain higher than the general population. It may be that as African-Americans gain more education they become more tolerant because there's an association between uh, a, more education and less anti-Semitism. And um, here's another interesting finding. <clears throat> the anti-Semitic propensities among Hispanics <laughs> differ according to birthplace. So let's see if you can look at this 2013. What is this showing here? Who are, who are these 36% who score high on anti-Semitism among Hispanics? Which ones are they? Foreign-born. Foreign born. What's the green? U.S. U.S.-born. So look at the difference. Two and a half times more likely to be anti-Semitic among the Hispanics if they're foreign-born as opposed to native-born. Now, why would that be? Why do you think that could be? The
2: traditions of the Catholic
1: Church. Yes, but.
2: Right, okay. Um,
1: well, are you, yes. I mean, well, there's only one Latin American communistic country, Cuba. But, it previously, previously was, and it still continues this culture. Okay, but I think you're wrong to Sorry. it. The, 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 the people that are immigrants, that are, that are not native-born, are coming from countries uh, that are in Latin America, which have more traditional teachings in Catholicism, that tend to be supportive of the supersessionist idea and that the Jews are responsible for the death of Jesus, uh, whereas people growing up in America have been exposed for the last 50 years with a rapprochement between Christianity and Judaism. The encyclical of Pope John 23rd called for an end to vilification of the Jews and to say that the Jews are not responsible for the death of Jesus, neither in the past nor in the present. And Protestant churches also began to change their ways of thinking about these matters. Uh, I must say some sociologists in the 1960s carry out some important studies that helped, I think, to promote this uh, uh, denouement or promote this rapprochement between various Christian denominations and, uh, and Judaism. An interesting finding in one of these famous studies, Christian Beliefs in Antisemitism by sociologists Charles Glock and Rodney Stark, uh, they did a large scale survey in California and they asked a whole bunch of questions. One of the questions they asked was, are there any Jews in the Bible? Now, when we think of the Bible, well, whom, whom do we name as Jews? The patriarchs, the matriarchs, David, and so on, King David, Moses, and so on. A minority of Christians, only 10%, but I think it's very revealing, said there was only one Jew in the entire Bible. This is Christians. So it includes the, what Christians call the Old Testament, what Jews call the Tanakh, or the Hebrew Scriptures, and, uh, and the New Testament. Who do you think was this one Jew that this minority, only 10%, saw in the Bible? Abraham. No. Moses. No. Judas. Yeah. Who's Judas? The
2: one up
1: right. Now, there's a current theory that this was a plan by Judas and, and Jesus to do this, but I, I don't know if that's how, how, how widespread that is. Now, of course, what's, what's so intriguing about this? Judas is a Greek version of of what name? What biblical name? Yehudah, Judah, right? Now does Judah sound like Jew? Yes. Why? Because in Hebrew, Judah's name and Judas in the New Testament had a Hebrew name, Yehudah. Yehudah is one of the sons of Jacob. Why do you say Jew in Hebrew? Yehudi. So why? Uh, and in fact, the Southern Kingdom, where Jerusalem was centered, uh, during the um, after the split between the Northern Kingdom and the Southern Kingdom after uh, <clears throat> uh, Solomon's rule, was called Judea, because Judah settled in the central portion of ancient Israel, where Jerusalem is, and so the people that lived there were seen as the sons of Judah, the children of Judah, and became the Jews. So, and how do you say Judaism in Hebrew? Yahadut, the same root word. Uh, to, to make somebody Jewish is liyahed, it's all the same root word in Hebrew. Um, are there any surprises in this uh, ADL data? Yeah, I think this is an interesting surprise. We heard a lot about, uh, maybe I think somebody from Harvard wrote about the pro-Israel lobby and how powerful AIPAC was in the pro-Israel lobby. Well, a, random, a representative sample of Americans uh, seemed to think which lobby is much more powerful than the pro-Israel lobby, it's over here. What lobby is that? The oil, the oil lobby. lobby, the pharmaceutical lobby, the NRA, even the tobacco lobby, is more powerful than the pro-Israel lobby, um, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, any, any questions about what what we the kind of portrait we painted of um, anti-Semitism in uh, the United States in the 21st century? you <clears throat> Anti-Semitism has declined, we said, from 29% to 12%, so a pretty reasonable decline. What's it like globally? Well the Anti-Defamation League also did a study in 2014 in quite a large number of countries, a very expensive survey, in which they asked a bunch of these questions. They even went to Iran and asked these questions. (coughs) So If 12% of the American population is anti-Semitic, how much greater do you think the world population of anti-Semites is? On average, Yeah. 40%? Good guess. Um, Let's take a look and see what they found. 26%. In the English-speaking countries, only 13%, pretty close to America. Where is anti-Semitism really high? in the Middle East and North Africa, the MENA countries. Um, this is a little surprising, but the highest index score in a non-MENA country was in Greece. The lowest index score in a MENA country, in a Middle Eastern and North African country, surprisingly was Iran considering that uh, we're told that on their missiles they have imprinted death to Israel. And they, they don't only make uncomplimentary statements about Israel, but about Jews as well. Um, well, what does this 26 percent equate to in people? About one point, over a billion people are judged by this um, Anti-Defamation League study to be anti-Semites. And that doesn't include the entire population because if there's seven billion people in the world, a billion isn't 26 percent, right? But of the countries that they surveyed, uh, perhaps about four billion people, 26 uh, percent Indicate they have anti-Semitic attitudes. Thirty-five percent never have never heard of the Holocaust. Um, Do you want to hear some more of this, or that's enough? They give you enough numbers. You want to you want to look at a few more slides? Okay. Um, So, what are the major stereotypes that exist on a global level? The most widely accepted anti-Semitic stereotype is that Jews are more loyal to Israel than to the country in which they live. Uh, I think it was the world, it's 41 percent. I think we saw in the previous slides 30 percent in the United States. So all around the world, people kind of think Jews are more loyal to Israel than the country in which they live. Um, it's less true in Asia than it is, uh, let's say, in, in Western Europe, which is kind of interesting. A second most widely accepted stereotype is that Jews have too much power in the business world. Um, This is the most widely accepted stereotype in Eastern Europe. Among respondents in the Middle Eastern and North African countries, the two most widely accepted stereotypes are people hate Jews because of the way Jews behave, 75%. Jews are more loyal to Israel than to this country and the countries they live in, 74%. So there's a a high level of hostility that exists in uh, the Middle East and North Africa, obviously related to the conflict that they see between Israel and the the Palestinians and the neighboring countries. But this is kind of an interesting finding. What's more important, religion or region of the world in shaping anti-Semitism? You might be inclined to say it's religion, but it isn't. True that 49% of Muslims have the highest average score of anti-Semitism, but region is even more important. In the Middle Eastern and North African areas, the the score is 74%, and there are there are, true there are dominant group there are Muslims in this area, but there are also uh, Christians living in them. We've heard sad stories of them being persecuted in recent uh, weeks. Um, So what are some variables that are associated with anti-Semitism? Age, people over 65 are more likely to be anti-Semitic. People who are living in countries where there's a larger Jewish population are less likely to be anti-Semitic. So there must be something with interacting with the Jews. When you actually interact with the Jews, you don't find them quite as objectionable. Education, now this is an interesting finding. In the West, Educated people are less likely to harbor, harbor anti-Semitic views. In the Middle East and North Africa, more educated people are more likely to hold anti-Semitic views. And then this is another interesting finding. There tends to be an overestimation of the global Jewish population. Uh, th- nearly 4 in 10 people in the world think there are, the Jews represent more than 10% of the world's population. Now, okay, 10%, what would that be? How many, what's that real number? Ten, if, they, if, they, if Jews are 10% of the world's population, what's the number?
2: 600,
1: 600 to 700 uh, million people. Wow. How many Jews are there in the world? 13. 13 to 14 million, closer to 14 million. How many were there in 1939? 18 million. It's taken. Now we're just celebrating the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II and the Jews have still only reclaimed one-third of what they lost in, uh, in the Holocaust. Um, any, any questions or comments that you want to raise with me? Here's another interesting finding. Of the 74% of the people surveyed around the world who never met a Jew still 25% harbor anti-Semitic attitudes. So you can, you can hate people, you've never met them, okay? That makes sense. I was talking to a colleague of mine in the physics department at UConn. Uh, he's an African-American physicist. Not a, he was asking me about the course on anti-Semitism and I was mentioning this finding. I said, well, you know, if we go to North Dakota where there are very few blacks and very few Jews, we'll still find a fair amount of, uh, anti-black sentiments and anti-Jewish sentiments even though there are no hardly any Jews or blacks living in North Dakota. How is that possible? Because the ideas in the culture have spread throughout the country even without interacting with other people. Um, Of the 26 percent who believe the majority of the anti-Semitic stereotypes tend to be probably true, 70% have actually never met a Jewish person. Um, let's see, is there any other interesting slides? I'm going to skip over a few. I think that's about it. Um, any any questions or comments? Or? Yes, go ahead. They
2: asked that question, they the German population?
1: If it's 30% in the United States, it would probably be at least that or not higher. Although Germany has made a concerted effort in its culture to punish people who deny the Holocaust. right? There are people that can go around denying the Holocaust and free speech protects them. In Germany, you can't do that. But um, if it's 30% in the United States, say Jews talk, talk too much about the Holocaust of this larger citizenry, I'm sure I don't know the answer, I would say it's at least that level if not higher. Any other questions? Whoops. Sorry, let me go back to the slide that I was up to. Okay, so I have two more questions that I wanted to address and then we can Oh gee, why does I keep doing that? I'm sorry. So the next question is, what are the correlates and consequences of uh, American anti-Semitism? So what do we know about the role of certain factors that sociologists have studied? So for example, education. Is education, more education, Leading to less anti-Semitism or more anti-Semitism? We sort of identified that before. Which is it? Right. The more education people get, the less anti-Semitism in the West, in, in 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 the United States and in Western Europe. What about age? Are older people more anti-Semitic or younger people? Older. Older. Why? They get older. crabby when they get older? I don't think we want to say that. We're you know the average age here is. Not young, Good. on average. So just, it's socially acceptable these days.
2: Widely socially acceptable.
1: As a result, what we like to say is there's a certain cohort effect. People who are of a certain age grew up in a certain world with a certain culture and a certain social structure where anti Semitic ideas were more prevalent. People growing up today, to some extent, that's less true. Although, my colleagues at Trinity College, Barry Cosman and Ariela Kesar recently published a study of the perceptions of anti-Semitism among college students and found a shocking amount of students, I think over 50% saying that they have experienced or observed anti-Semitism. And first I couldn't believe it. But I was talking to Barry today and what is it that's distinctive to the cultural cohort of college students that's not distinctive in all likelihood to the cohort represented tonight?
2: for Justice in Palestine on the campus. Yes. Part of it, yes. And just the uh, media. That's criticism right. of Israel. Right,
1: right. Well, and, and the social media that they follow, and they read, and they can see all these things. Stuff that I don't see, they see it. And they say, well, I've observed anti-Semitism. Now, I was saying, Sandy and I, my wife and I, were talking about it. So about two or three years ago, uh, my assistant in the Center for Judaic Studies came into the office. It was in July, I think, quiet time of the year, and she found a anti-Semitic message on our answering machine. It said, "It sounded like a high school student who had a smile on his face, maybe doing it on a dare, and saying uh, Hitler should have killed all of you," and, and with a mock German accent, and said a bunch of other offensive things. So, how many people were victimized by listening to that? Two, my assistant and me, okay? But if someone does the same thing and puts a video up on media, well, thousands of people could see it. So I think that helps us to understand the phenomenon. Whether it indicates uh, a growth in antisemitism, I'm not quite sure. So I've invited my colleague Barry Cosman to come to UConn and talk about this so we can further explore this matter. I just had a conversation with him while I was at the hotel. All right, what about religion? Now, formally, we could say that people who were more pious Christians were more likely to be anti-Semitic because they subscribed to the supersessionist ideas, to the idea that Jews are an inferior group, that they've been superseded, that the New Testament is superior to the Old Testament in, 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 teachings that the Jews followed, and so on. But um, what we've seen is a movement away from that uh, kind of teaching. Uh, What we can say, I think that might still be true, is an observation by the famous social psychologist Gordon Alport, who suggested that if individuals view their religion as providing them with an institutionalized sense of superiority, they're more likely to be prejudiced bigoted, anti-Semitic, if they look at their religion and emphasize the interiorized creedal ideals of the religion, love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others as you would have them do unto you, then they are less likely to be intolerant, less likely to be anti-Semitic. I think that's still an important, useful way to look at the role of religion in shaping prejudice, discrimination, racism, and anti-Semitism. What about region and locality as a correlate of American anti-Semitism. Now, there's literature that suggests the people that live in the rural parts of the South and the Midwest are more likely to subscribe to anti-Semitic ideas and anti-Semitic beliefs. On the other hand, people in the South have been found to be more pro-Israel. This relates to the point you were making before. So again, it's kind of a mixed bag. It's not, it's not quite as clear-cut that we can sort of say you know, the XYZ characteristics and you're automatically anti-Semitic. Not quite, it requires a more nuanced approach. How about political ideology and identification? Okay, well, historically in Europe, where did we find more of the anti-Semitism? On the right or on the left? On the right, I mean the, the Nazis were a political ideology on the right. Although the Soviets were an ideology on the left, that they weren't too hospitable. But uh, the crimes that the Soviets committed, I don't think were the same as the crimes the Nazis committed. I think the best way to think about it is that extremism on the left and on the right can be associated with anti-Semitism. It's not just an automatic right-wing thing to be anti-Semitic. There could be left-wing elements extremists that could also be anti-Semitic. Psychological traits
2: sounds like no matter
1: what your strong beliefs are, you can be anti-Semitic, left or right. Yes. I think if, if you're on the extremes, I think that there's a tendency to denigrate different groups of people, perhaps to serve your own ideological goals that, you've, that you're following or subscribing to. What about psychological traits? Well, interesting. In the middle of the 20th century, there was a mammoth study that was funded by the American Jewish Committee, I think it was, called the Authoritarian Personality. And the purpose of that study was to determine, in the wake of World War II, whether the phenomena of mass murder and the Holocaust that the Germans created could occur in the United States. After all, Germany, in the beginning of the 20th century, was a very advanced, society in terms of the cultural contributions, the scientific contribution. If you think about three of the greatest minds of the last 150 years, I ask my students this, whom did you put on that list? Einstein? Einstein in the physical? Freud, Freud. and Marx all descendants of German-speaking Jewry. Now, Marx wasn't much of a good Jew, I suppose you could say, because it wasn't his fault. His parents converted to Christianity. Einstein was an identified Jew. Freud was Jewish, too. By the way, Freud was invited to address the anti-defamation, uh, B'nai B'rith, not anti-defamation, B'nai B'rith. I don't know when this was. I guess the early part of the 20th century. And he was asked, well, how does your being Jewish affected?" your work. Now, Freud wasn't a pious person, but he. this is very interesting. He said, being Jewish taught me how to stand in opposition. And his ideas were in opposition to mainstream thinking. And he had the courage to promote them because he saw that being Jewish was going against the grain. And maybe in a way, that's part of what supports anti-Semitism, that people can't tolerate, that there's some people that aren't subscribing to everything that everybody else believes in, and there isn't a toleration for a different set of uh, practices, (laughs) a different set of beliefs, a different set of of ways of doing things. Well, so this study, the authoritarian personality, suggested that anti-Semitism, along with ethnocentrism and racism, emerged in uh, a complex they called the authoritarian personality that was produced by parents who raised their children in a harsh and authoritarian manner, that they only expected their children to be very meek and subservient to people of more authority, namely like parents, but other authority figures, but they could be contemptuous of people of less authority and less power and less prestige in society, like minority groups like Jews or blacks or other ethnic groups and religious groups that are not considered part of the mainstream. Now, that was a very powerful study. I actually had to read the two volumes, I'm not exaggerating, the two volumes are this thick for my master's final exam. I passed the exam, so I read the books. But because they were very popular in the middle of the 20th century and thereafter, and there were lots of studies about the authoritarian personality. But it, it was an important study, but a lot of people questioned, But why do you pick on the Jews? How does it explain why they pick on the Jews? Um, And we talked about racial and ethnic differences. We mentioned the uh, greater amount of anti-Semitism present among African-Americans and among Hispanics. But the decline, I think, that we see in African-Americans has to do with increasing education and the decline we see... In uh, Hispanic anti-Semitism has to do with their length of time here. If they're date of born, they become less likely to be anti-Semitic. Uh, any questions? Yes. Did you talk about the like the new Christian,
2: the new Christians in Latin American countries?
1: Because I did What do you they're, they're they're But enlighten us.
2: They're pro-Israel and they love yes. Jews, supposedly.
1: And well, if they,
2: they find out you're Jewish, they just want to. I'm so excited. I think you're the
1: person of God. You're God's people. I haven't met that. <laughs> <laughs> There's
2: a lot.
1: <laughs> um, I didn't really explain how sociologists think about explaining anti-Semitism. Do you, do you want to hear that in two minutes? There are basically three levels of explanation. <clears throat> One level says... Anti-Semitism arises in certain individuals who have a personality need to despise other people, like the authoritarian personality. But that doesn't explain, if you, ha- if you accepted that as the main reason, well, that would mean that all those people that are anti-Semites are sick, distorted personalities. It's not sufficient. So there's another school of thought and set of theories that says anti-Semitism like prejudice in general, racism in general, is a part of the culture. People are socialized to be anti-Semitic by their parents, by, by the culture around them, by watch, reading certain books or watching certain movies at a certain point in history. Um, but that doesn't really uh, explain to us, well, why did anti-Semitism start in the beginning? And so I think most sociologists would agree and if you want to try to understand anti-Semitism, prejudice, discrimination, and racism in general, you have to look to the kind of interactions that go on among different groups. And what we like to say is prejudice and discrimination arise as weapons in intergroup conflict. And one group will use any means necessary to disqualify another group. Why do they want to disqualify some people? So that they can get more of the rewards for themselves. If I can keep them out of going to Harvard, then I have get better chance of getting to Harvard, my kids have a better chance of getting into Harvard. Uh, if I could keep them, and Harvard did that, kept Jews out, kept a lot of different groups out. I think Yale, Harvard-Yale big conflict uh, competition, I think Yale had a, probably a worse record than Harvard did. Even my own university, a colleague of mine uh, wrote a um, history of UConn and found an interesting letter written by President Jorgensen, very popular president and a long-serving president in the 1930s and 40s, uh, in which he wrote a letter of recommendation to the Yale Medical School praising this student as a candidate for admission to the Yale Medical School. But he added a little line at the bottom, but I should tell you he is of a Hebrew background, to make sure that they didn't let him in if the quota wasn't reached, if, the quote, if, if his admission exceeded the quota. So ultimately, sociologists argue that the ultimate source of prejudice, discrimination, racism, and anti-Semitism has to do with the competition and conflict that develops among groups to secure certain rewards in society. And if I have the power to suppress some groups of people because my group is larger, I've got more guns than they do, I've got more prestige than they do, I've got more money than they do, more land than they do, then I'll keep them down because then I can maximize the rewards for my own group. And then the culture takes on a flavor of this denigration of this group and reinforces it. And then some people grow up um, with these distorted personalities that they, in order to function, they need to suppress other people. So that's kind of like in a five minute capsule view why there is prejudice, discrimination, racism, and anti-Semitism. Yes.
2: Okay, so it it describes uh, why there's all of those things, rather than just, because I was wondering, where do the Jews fit into that? Why anti-Semitism, rather than just racism against blacks or Latinos, what's special about the Jews? What makes that different? Well, the
1: unique interactions the Jews have had, the undergirding in Western societies of the Christian teachings that Tended to denigrate the Jews, to demonize the Jews in the medieval period. There's a lingering heritage of that, um, you know. It, it sort of, that's what people objected to to some extent in Mel Gibson's movie The Passion. It seemed to bring back those old ideas that the Pope John the 23rd repudiated in his famous encyclical Nostra Aetate, that Jews are not historically responsible for the death of Jesus, and neither in the time of Jesus nor in centuries pa- past nor today. So there is a kind of story to it of certain kinds of interactions, certain kinds of competition and conflict, uh, which becomes integrated into the culture and then also sometimes into the personalities of individuals. Yes, you're allowed to ask questions. Can I ask a question even though I'm, I'm just yeah. trying help? Um, so what's the end game in your opinion? I mean given the the sort of history and the picture you just painted, there doesn't seem to be, and I might be wrong, but there doesn't seem to be a steady upward growth if you're, you know, in, in the drop in anti-Semitism. There might be spots here and there, but generally speaking, it's been
0: millennia of what you're describing. So is what what can be done to sort of effectively change that? Okay. As opposed to just I mean, academically I have a much better understanding, but I don't feel better about the change in in overall attitude, whether it's with the meanest states or in the U.S.
1: Well, let me—I'll skip ahead here. I was going to show you a few more slides of numbers, but I think you're tired of looking at the numbers. So let me let me go to the last question. So it's a great setup. You know, this is all this that I've told you about anti-Semitism historically contemporary United States and the world, you know, make you feel optimistic or pessimistic. So let, let, me, let me go through a few of these. Uh, if you take this with you um, and you run into anti-Semitism, if you take the slides with you, a copy I have and I'm glad to share it with you, at the end there are these slides here that the ADL talks about how to confront anti-Semitism, what to actually do if you, if you run across anti-Semitism. But let me, let me talk a little bit about the uh, optimistic scenario and the pessimistic scenario. It, it's kind of like a Talmudic debate. You know, the Talmud um, debates a lot of issues. For example, and we're not close to the Festival of Hanukkah, but um, there's a debate in the Talmud. How should we light The Hanukkah candelabrum, the Hanukkah menorah. Okay, should we, you know, uh, you know, let's line up the Hanukkah menorah here. Okay. So, is the first candle going to be over on this side, and the second candle here, and the and the eight candles? So there was a question: when we light the eighth night or this everything after the first night, do we start with the eighth candle, and light the seventh, or do we start with the first candle? And there's a debate between two famous rabbis, Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. Rabbi Shammai said, we'll start here every night, the first candle, and then we'll go on and on and on. Rabbi Hillel said, no, we should start with the new candle and go back to light the first candle. You follow what I'm saying? Is Is that pretty clear? You may recall how, you know, if you light the candles, how you do it. The Talmud does not resolve the issue. It presents both sides. But what do Jews do? What is the custom? Do you know? Following Hillel. Hillel. You start with the newest candle. And yet it was not decided in the Talmud. We rabbis of the Talmud say we're only following Rabbi Hillel. That's why there's a great little line or joke, which probably you've heard. Wherever there are two Jews, there are three opinions. It's this opinion, it's that opinion, it's the opinion nobody's going to hold. Or wherever there are two Jews, there's three synagogues. My synagogue, your synagogue, and the synagogue none of us is going to go to. So there's a healthy debate in Jewish life about a lot of things, and it's actually something that I think people admire or they like, both maybe inside the Jewish community and outside the Jewish community. And in fact, in the Talmud, there's an expression in Aramaic. It says, okay, this is Shammai's point of view, and, and the Amerik, 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 Aramaic expression is gisa." on the other hand, and that's like Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof. He says, on the one hand, there's this, and on the other hand, there's this. So that's what I'm going to do, and then we'll try to see how you feel about all of that. So on the positive side, only 12% of Americans are anti-Semitic. It's quite a lot less than it was just 50 years ago. On the other hand, 12% represents how many millions of people? 49. What? Close to 40 yeah, 35 to 40 million people. Uh, what's that? Six times the amount of Jews in the United States are anti-Semites. That's about twice the population of all of New England, right? I, don't, I don't, didn't check this out, but I think there aren't more than 18 million people living in New England, something like that. A second point, the more education people have, the less likely they are to be anti-Semitic. On the other hand, in some other parts of the world, higher education makes them more anti-Semitic. A third point, we have a powerful representation and supporters in the U.S. government, uh, including an office in the State Department that addresses the issue of anti-Semitism, that speak out against anti-Semitism and important individuals that are prominent, uh, celebrities for example, speak out against anti-Semitism. George M. Cohen illustrated that point. That's why I shared that story with you. On the other hand, there are hundreds of neo-Nazi and other hate groups in the United States and I counted 29 in New England. We don't see them too often but they're there. Fourth. Um, powerful foreign government leaders have spoken out very passionately against anti-Semitism. The Prime Minister of France, uh, the President of France went to the service in memory of the people that were killed in the kosher supermarket. And in some other countries as well, in Germany and other countries. On the other hand, there are some countries, I'll name one, Iran, that uh, have vilified uh, Israel in particular and Jews by extension. Uh, a fifth area on the positive side, intergroup relations organizations in the United States like the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, the American Jewish Committee, uh, work hard to promote inter-religious dialogue uh, and to work against actions that are anti-Semitic, that are racist. Now that's very positive. On the other hand, some religious groups have supported uh, actions uh, that are, if not anti-Semitic, I'm thinking of the BDS movement, if not directly anti-Semitic, contribute to a kind of uh, uh, sentiment of anti-Semitism. Finally, a lot of campuses have uh, and leaders of the campus have deliberately spoken out against anti-Semitism, uh, have not supported this BDS movement and the vilification of, uh, of Israel and Jews. On the other hand, there are instances where you could point to these actions taking place. So what are we left with here? How does all that make you feel? That things are pretty good or things aren't so good?
2: that we're anti-Semitic, we hear it now even on the front page of the New York Times with that girl Molly Horowitz in in Stanford who was asked recently about her Jewishness before she could qualify to be a member of the student government Senate. Stanford is a top school, very educated, so it's certainly not very educated. Optimistic.
1: Yeah, disconcerting, yes, but I think, we, I, I think we, I understand that, and there was the case at UCLA too, where somebody was asked, well, because you're Jewish, can you be fair? As if, you know, nobody asked any other religious or ethnic group member, can you be fair when we're judging issues, you know, that, that, that may affect racism or, um, or other kinds of issues that, that sometimes come up on a college campus. I don't, I, don't, I don't think we should judge the entire situation by certain specific instances that occur. I think these are, they give us pause for concern. They need to be dealt with, they're, and they're, the organizations I mentioned, like the ADL and the American Jewish Committee and other local Jewish community relations councils in local communities do attempt to deal with these issues. I, I don't think we should draw the conclusion from instances like this, that we are on the eve of the 1930s. Uh, I think that's I think that's overstating the case, and it's I, in my view um, not not helpful to do that. I do think we need to be vigilant about these matters, and so let me let me conclude with this thought. I'll be glad to talk to you afterward over cookies and tea. You might ask me. Am I optimistic or pessimistic? Uh, Well, you know, what's the difference between the optimist and the pessimist? Well, the pessimist sees the obstacle in every opportunity. And the optimist sees the opportunity in every obstacle. So I think that it's important for us to seize the opportunity to build, uh, to strengthen rather, intergroup cooperation, develop allies, and legitimate diversity, that we need to, as individual citizens, whatever our religious background, to focus on these issues, intergroup cooperation, the development of shared alliances, and the legitimation of diversity. And I think these are ways of combating uh, anti-Semitism when it appears. Finally, I I mentioned the the low fertility of the Jewish population, why they're they're shrinking. So um, let me suggest to you that uh, some of you go home and uh, either encourage your children or your grandchildren, if not yourself, to to work on your obvious homework assignment. Thank you very much. (laughs)